What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbow, and with gas prices soaring more every day, I'm here to fill up your tank for free, but unleaded ain't gonna cut it, because today... It's Strictly Diesel, the 1998 debut album by Spineshank for Roadrunner Records. And we're going to be talking to Mike from Spineshank. We're going to be talking to Rob from Spineshank. And we're also going to be talking to Kevin Estrada, the man who signed them to Roadrunner Records in the first place. Now, you may remember Kevin from previous episodes. He not only spoke on one, the Anyone episode, but he also is uh, responsible for signing Chimera and Dislocated Styles. And really, he's just the man. He's a very accomplished photographer, even to this day, landing covers of, like, Entertainment Weekly and other publications like that. And you will be hard-pressed. It, it actually might be impossible to find anybody that has anything bad to say about him, which either means he's the best dude ever, or he's got some incriminating pictures that are blackmailing all these people. And either way, you got to respect that kind of power. But we're going to talk to Kevin about his relationship with Spineshank, often considered the fifth member of the band by uh, by me. I say it all the time. I feel like, <laughs> and uh, and you know he um, he was there from the beginning with Strictly Diesel and went through their Roadrunner career with Height of Callousness, which we did an episode on previously. And if you haven't listened to that, you should when you're done with this one. And he was also through their third Roadrunner album, Self Destructive Pattern, which had a uh, a Grammy nomination. So we cover all that. It's the beginning of the end, but it's the beginning at the beginning, and that's where we start. So without further ado, Kevin Estrada. Spineshank got their demo. Their first demo they put out was like Men and... um, Got their demo again in one of those things where okay I'd, I'd given up on System of a Down, um, kind of in that whole circle, Cold Chamber, Static X, you know, just that whole world is kind of you know there's all these bands opening for so and so, so and so headlines this night, so and so's opening that night, and um, it's just a real once you're in that world, everybody's kind of connected and Spine Shank kept coming up and I'd go see them and met them and what i liked about them was first of all like i tell you i got to connect with them as people and those guys were like they came from the same kind of area i grew up in the san gabriel valley you know we rode our bikes and bought records at the same record stores when we were kids 
And musically, I liked what they were doing because they were experimenting also. You know, they were trying to introduce these samples and trying to trigger things. You know, they, that demo wasn't the best, but I saw what they wanted to do. I got where they were coming from. And I think Johnny was like, I think the first time I saw him, Johnny played bass and sang at the same time. I don't even think they had a bass player. And so I kind of thought that was it. And it kind of threw me off. And I, I wasn't too into that whole playing bass singing thing. Because um, like, I, I could tell Johnny could sing, but I felt playing the bass really inhibited him from singing, from really concentrating on it. And so I talked to them and then, they're like, oh, yeah, he's not even, I think Mike told him, he's not even the bass player. We just don't have one right now. And Johnny's like, yeah, I used to play bass in another band, and we got this gig, and and we didn't have a bass player, so I just played bass and sang. I said, so you sing? You normally just sing? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I just want to sing. And so I said, okay, that's kind of cool, you know, good, because I didn't really care for you playing bass and singing. I think, you know, it kind of took away from what you should be doing and all of them agreed yeah 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 and we hung out and then um they were really aggressive like it, it was kind of the point where i was like gosh i shouldn't have given these guys my number they're calling me all the time like mike would call me like two or three times just checking in you know hey how you doing uh you know i'll you know we got some shows okay like he'd call two or three times a week and johnny would call and tommy would call all the time i'm like gosh, these guys are like, like relentless. But then it turned to like where I started respecting them being so relentless. Like these guys really believe in themselves and, you know, like they're not afraid to knock on doors. And that's how I grew up, like being a rock photographer to do what I do. Like I had to knock on a lot of doors and I had to grow thick skin to do that. And that's what they were doing. And I really respected that. So then I asked him if I could come to a rehearsal and hear his new stuff that they're working on. And at that point, I think they even had, they had added another guitarist. I think they had two guitarists at that point and a bass player and Johnny was singing. So I started going to those rehearsals and then eventually there was just one guitarist and another bass player. Then I went again and it was, yeah, just Mike playing guitar again. And then another bass player, it was like this revolving door of bass. I'm like, is this band like ever going to like get it together? You know, like I can't sign a band that they don't know who's in the band. So eventually they found Rob and Rob started being their guy. And I remember um, we slowly, I would go see them in Azusa. They had a little place in Azusa and we'd go there and just kind of hang out and talk and listen to songs and, and, I would talk to him about being melodic, you know, not being so brutal. Like they were, they were brutal. Like they had something to prove. They were so pissed off and just so angry. And especially Johnny, like he could get angry, you know, like if he had a bad day, he'd come out. And I thought that was a good thing to channel that anger. But I told him, you don't have to be angry all the time. You know, like you can sing, Let's, you know, sing when it's the right moment, you know, and Mike could make these great melodies and just create these melodies. And I said, you, sh- you know, don't scream over this part, maybe embrace that melody 
that he's doing. And Johnny started kind of like, you know, kind of making up words or just kind of like doing things like that over Mike's melodies. And I started hearing that magic, you know, and the band was kind of like, yeah, it's kind of cool. And Tommy was getting more creative with, with triggering things. And Tommy was always buying gear and experimenting with keyboards and triggered like all kinds of stuff. I didn't know what he was doing, but it was, it was really sounding different, but really starting to connect. And they were starting to sound not like this hardcore band, but more of like this, what Spine Shank became. One day they were sing- they were working on this new song that became Detached. And they were singing and Johnny sang this whole Detached melody. And I said, that's it. Like, that's exactly what I've been wanting to hear from you guys. I love it. I love it. This, let me hear it again. And again, we played that song. I had them play like five or six songs. And I say, what if you moved this? Or what if you did this? Or, you know, what if you doubled that chorus? Or wait, don't go into the chorus yet. Let's do the verse twice. You know, we experimented with it. And finally we got it. I remember at the end of the night, we got it. And they went through it the way we did it. And Johnny's pants fell off during the song like his belt broke and he was he was jumping around singing and his pants fell down and he had this big huge johnny santos smile johnny has like that colgate million dollar smile when he wants to give it and he just smiles at me like that and picks his pants up off the off the ground and and didn't miss a beat and kept singing that song and would go growly and screamy and melodic and i loved it and i said that's it that's what i'm looking for i said i'm i want to do a demo deal with you guys you know, I want to talk to Roadrunner about doing a demo deal. And they were like, wow, you know, so that's why Johnny gets the whole detached was the deal breaker. Like it was, it wasn't based on one song, but that was the night that I realized that I could work with them and they had the potential to make that kind of music that was heavy and melodic. I convinced Roadrunner to do this little demo deal with the band and Roadrunner was so impressed with some of the demos that they said, you know what, let's just skip the rest of the demos. Let's just, you should just sign the band. Let's just do it. So I signed the band and then we started, went deep into pre-production and the, the band was just on fire, like writing song after song after song. And at the end, we had these songs that were so good that I wanted to throw some of the songs off of Strictly Diesel and put these do these new ones but we couldn't do it i mean the band grew those few weeks in the studio and we could have had a much better record with strictly diesel if we had maybe another two or three weeks you know it would have been a different record it might have been strictly diesel meets height of callousness you know maybe that footprint into height of callousness more so than we what you had initially and amir does that record right amir and jay baumgartner were the co-producers on the, on that record. And, um, Amir was brought in really to, um, to shape the band, to help them after kind of my, the Kevin Estrada pre-production where I felt they were good enough, you know, to hand off to Amir. So Amir could really get in deep and do that. And, um, and then we got, had Jay really be that engineer producer, and Amir was kind of getting creative with, with pedals and experimenting with kind of these sounds that he did with Orgy. And then we, um, we brought in, you know, electronics and just 
different key people to, you know, um, Josh Abraham to come in and work the electronic side, side of things with Tommy and really develop that side of things. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a team effort, that record. And it was a learning process for all of us because that was the first record that I made. I helped system do their first demo with Alex Newport. You know, I, I brought Alex in to do the demos with, with system, their first demo tape. Um, so I only had experience really in the kind of that demo side, even though you're in a studio, it's different than making a real record. So Spongebob was my first record. Um, and I learned a lot on that sort of the band. And, um, you know, I think that propelled all of us for, and readied us for height of callousness. Was there a consciousness at the time of Strictly Diesel that it was going to be perceived as a, a connection to Fear Factory, especially with having Burton on the album? There was, um, when we were recording, you know, Spineshank was just this little band that nobody really knew about or cared about. Fear Factory was a band people cared about. They were big supporters of Spineshank early on. And, um, you know, Dino spoke highly of them. And um, so did Bert. And I think, I don't think, Dino didn't play on that record. I don't think, I think we wanted Dino to play on it and I don't think he could, but, and we wanted Bert to sing on it and Bert came and sang on the record. And yeah, the band was already getting a lot of comparisons to fear factory and they were starting to be called like baby fear factory. You know, their people were saying their guitars sounded like fear factory, you know, maybe it was the tone, but not the plane. I mean, Dino was like a machine the way he plays and, you know, Mike, plays completely different so they got a lot of that comparison even before you know the record and then once burton was on the record you know people were kind of like oh that makes sense figures you know he's on there baby fear factory and they played shows with fear factory would get the whole baby fear factory so yeah i mean i i don't regret having that connection because they understood the band they respected Spine Shank and they did take them under their their wings as, you know, the kind of their little brothers and wanted to help them and wanted to see another another LA band from, you know, do well on Roadrunner, you know, and, and that's how Fear Factory was. They're just team players. There was no competition. You know, they they wanted the best for the label and they wanted LA to have a great scene. Um, but yeah, I think that was a little tough on Spine Shank, trying to get away from the shadow of Fear Factory. Um but eventually, Hyda Callousness separated them from everyone and, um, you know, let everyone see who Spineshank really was, that they did have their own sound. And they realized that Strictly Diesel was kind of that baby step that they needed to do to find out who they were and kind of grow as a band. Yeah, I almost feel like you can't get Hyda of Callousness without the probably, I don't want to say anger, but the, the point to prove to break out of that shadow that Strictly Diesel gave them. I don't think you get that motivation. I guess that's the word I'm looking for to, to really just showcase everything they can do. Well, there was, man, I'll tell you, making Strictly Diesel and making Height of Callousness were two different worlds. Not only the production team and everything, the songs, but what was going on, what the vibe was, the pressure. When we made Strictly Diesel, the pressure was, okay, here's this new band. Um, the label doesn't expect a lot from them, but wants a good record. 
you know, it's your debut record. There's that pressure on them. They want to tour. They want to make a living being artists. So there was that pressure. We're the new guys. We got to prove ourselves. Second record, the pressure was completely different. The pressure was, hey, your rec- your first record did okay. You spent more money than you were supposed to. You borrowed money from tour support. You borrowed money from merchandise. You guys are in debt. Kevin wants to make another record. Kevin wants Garth. You know, you guys and Kevin want Garth Richardson. This record is going to cost us more than the first record. Kevin's fighting for you. Kevin won't shut up. Kevin's bugging us. We're going to make your record. But if you don't deliver, you're gone. And pretty much it meant I was gone too. We had this last chance, you know, to make this record. And I pretty much, not pretty much, I did. I put my job on the line for that band more than once. All my bands I would, but that band, I more than once I said, if ABC doesn't happen, you can fire me. Or if ABC doesn't happen, I'll quit. Or take it out of my salary. That I said a lot. I think that was pressure on them too, knowing that not only it wasn't only do or die for them, it was do or die for me too. And I think they, they carried that pressure and that guilt also, knowing that I would fight for them. And that was kind of, they wanted to fight for me too. And I really respected that. So we kind of went in this together. Like we're like a gang, man. Like, you know, it's kind of like joining a gang. Like once you're in, so that pressure was there and all of us were pissed off at the world, at the label, at each other, you know, and I think that really came through in the record. You know, Mike was more aggressive with his playing. Tommy was more aggressive. You know, Rob's vocals are searing like he's, you know, sound like he's getting stabbed in the side, you know, and Johnny was just pissed off beyond, you know, and Garth was on Johnny. When I spoke to Garth early before we started recording, that was the plan. You know, we got to get Johnny's anger out. You know, like we want fierce vocals. We know Johnny had the potential to be a star. And we knew Johnny could sing and Johnny wanted to sing. He wanted to sing, sing, sing and get less screamy. But we wanted him to get more angry and have those vocals, not just a vocal, but a performance. We wanted to like, that was kind of Garth and I spoke in detail about Johnny's performance having to be like, just like priceless. Like the record really was going to come down to how believable Johnny Santos was on this record. And Johnny was dealing with like his kids and, child support and you know garth was brutal on him man like i didn't tell garth to do what he did i told garth like you know we gotta we want johnny pissed you know not drunk not high pissed but garth was brutal man garth was just on him on him like you know it worked like johnny came to me too and he's like man that bullshit that garth is doing man that's that shit's not going to work, man. That's, and I know that you're on it, Kevin. I know that you know what he's doing. It's not going to work. I'm telling you right now, it's not going to work. You know, Garth's trying to like piss me off and say things to me and make me sneak. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And he went in there and he'd be pissed off and he'd sing. And man, it worked. Like 
Johnny didn't even know it was working and it was working. But Garth never gave up. Like I even said, Garth, you got to cool off. You got to chill out. Like, and Garth's like, you know, no, you know, screw that. You know, this is what we're going to do. You know, are you happy with what we're getting? I'm like, yeah, but you know, you're killing him. Garth's like, nope, nope, we're going to do it. We're going to do this. Johnny was always that, that fighter that got knocked down five or six times throughout the fight and everybody's betting against him. But Johnny comes back in the last round you know, and fights the best fight you've ever seen. And that was Johnny Santos. Johnny Santos, I mean, he's a singer in a rock band, you know, and Johnny wanted to be the singer in a rock band. He had the ability to be a singer, but he also wanted to be the rock star. And Johnny loved to party and he loved to hang out and, you know, but that was part of who he was and who he is, you know, and that was part of who I loved about Johnny. And that was part of why I wanted to sign Spine Shank because I knew Johnny Santos could be a star. You know, I've photographed and worked with a lot of stars and I know there's some special little spark in, in certain people and Johnny has that spark, but you know, you got to take the good with the bad. You know, you want this guy to sing and you guys want him to be great on stage, but yeah, it also comes with all that other baggage. You know, he's not the easiest guy to deal with and he's not here to work all the time, but like I said, Johnny delivers, man. He'll come through in the end and he'll give you what you want, but he's just got to be ready to do it. And Garth got him ready to do it. Mike and Tommy and Rob work their asses off 24-7, 24-7, you know, complete professionals. Those guys are workaholics and they try to suck Rob into that world, you know, and they teach Rob, you got to do this, you got to do that. Cause Rob really didn't come from that whole musician world, but Mike and Tommy, that was it for them 24-7 was making the best record, experimenting. What can we do here? Okay, I did this. Let's try this all the time. Those guys, you could count on them. All they wanted was the best record ever. And yeah, we got a Grammy nomination out of that record, which was mind-blowing. You know, we were up against Manson and Korn and, you know, all these huge bands. And there's this little band, Spineshine. Like, who is that? You know, that was, that was an amazing day. It was always about passion for me. And like I say, it wasn't about a Grammy nomination or about money. When it, it was for me, it was creating and fulfilling those artists dreams so they could tour. I was so happy when a band would be on tour. I was so happy when the music was on the charts. I was so happy when Spineshank was nominated, man. I was so proud. It was like, it was the greatest day except for my kids being born to have a Grammy nomination for one of my bands. Like I was so happy because like, this is what they wanted They've strived for this. This is their dream come true. And for me, you know, that was the end. That was pretty much towards the end of my career with Roadrunner, too. That was coming close. And that Grammy nomination for me, I think, was a big part of me kind of starting to shut the door on my career in the music is because I kind of felt like I achieved the Grammy for the band. You know, I was with them. They did, they did the music. They wrote it, but I was a part of that. And I think I'm done. Thanks again to Kevin for sharing these insights and stories on the early, early beginnings of Spineshank and his relationship with them, raising them from baby birds until they were able to fly on their own to new heights of callousness. So we move on to Rob Garcia, bass player for Spineshank. And he comes in not at the very, very beginning, but pretty close. 
But what? First, did you think? Did you really think you were going to get through an episode without me bringing up wrestling? Well, fat chance, because Spineshank's song off of this album, Detached, was once used as an entrance theme for wrestler The Amazing Red. So I used that opportunity to ask Rob about the only real sport that matters. My mom and my grandmother, they would they would always go to the to the Olympic the Olympic Auditorium in L.A. back at well way back when. So I mean, they would see like Gory Guerrero and you know a young Andre the Giant wrestling, you know, all the time. So I mean, it was it was always around, you know. Wow. So did you ever see Andre wrestle? I saw him wrestle the Ultimate Warrior at the L.A. Sports Arena. Oh man, that is that's incredible. Yeah, I, I was pissed because it was supposed to be. I didn't know anything about touring, you know, or house shows. So that night it was a Saturday night and the Saturday Saturday night's main event. Right. And so we raced home to watch it. You know, I was like, this is bullshit. This isn't the match we watched. So like, I mean, not necessarily he wasn't a hero. I loved Jake the Snake when we were growing up. I dragged my fiance to a, I always dragged her to con- conventions with me. So he, he was there, you know, we're like, shit, Jake the Snake, you know, it's like, cool. You know, so he was sitting there by himself. There was no, there was no line whatsoever you know and so i like well let's, let's just jump on it you know so when i got his you know got his autograph and i was just like hey man you know like i saw you at the la sports arena you know you covered virgil with uh with damien yeah <laughs> and yeah 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 cool man i just looked over at her and i was like i go you ever heard that term you know uh never meet your heroes and she's like yeah and i go he's the reason why <laughs> You know, like, you know, I go, I go, that's kind of fucked up, you know, and I was like, I hope he's not like that with everybody. Strictly Diesel. You know, this is the first record, so I imagine that you would have a lot of fond memories for it, even if maybe it's not your favorite record. I mean, this has got to be a huge, important time in your life, right? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was our first record. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, the guys had been before I was in the band, I had kind of been talking to Kevin and I had joined and whatnot. And it was surreal. I mean, the story between us that we always laughed is when he said, I want to offer you a recording deal, a record deal, whatever. First person to still, to still their drink was me. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was out of shock or just cause I'm clumsy. We always, all of us always had the idea of, you know, doing eight track demos and whatnot, thinking that we're doing this serious production deal you know and now we're actually seeing it were you in bands before because you know of course you do a lot of the background vocals and you have a really intense voice yourself was that ever something that you want you seem also like kind of a shy guy too so i don't know if being a front man would yeah. be your, your I, forte i was in a i was in a band in high school two other friends uh called swing side circle i i pretty much it was you know a bunch of us kids high school kids listen to heavy metal collected comic books watch wrestling you know, friends were starting to get into that stuff, and it was pretty much, hey, here, here, play this. You know, and they handed me a bass, you know, and taught me from there. And then it was, okay, hey, here, scream into this. You know, I was the only one that, I guess, could scream, so that was that, you know. And so we, we would play backyards, and, you know, every so often we would trickle and do a potato play into Hollywood, you know. And, and that, you know, we did that for a while, you know, for uh, actually a couple of years. We ended up playing uh, our drummer's. I think girlfriend at the time I ended up playing a birthday party and i guess she was friend with friends with johnny and that, that was when they were basic enigma and we played the backyard together and just ended up jamming and had a good time cool and that was that and then 
years later, I ran to Tommy at the mall, you know, like, Hey, how you been? We've been up to, we're just talking and he gave me this flashing demo. That was the one with, uh, Stan Menden, Novocaine. And then, uh, you know, cut to months later, we were hanging out, we're hanging out more and more. And then a couple months later, I ended up quitting that band. And actually Tommy was there when I quit and he was just, he was kind of, you know, trying to talk to me and say like, dude, just don't, don't quit. You know, I'm like, nah, you know, it's, just, it's, you know, time to call it a day. And the next day he had asked me to be in the band. Johnny was playing bass and singing and they wanted him to focus more on vocals. So they got a friend of Mike's to play bass and then that didn't work out. So I was filling in off, off and on for shows. And then I quit. And then the next day Tommy asked me to join Spine Shank. The whole thing sounds like a Disney Channel original movie. You're playing shows in backyards, and then you meet up at the mall, and then you join the band. You get yeah, a record yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, we, it, 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 yeah, it, it was. Uh, it, it, it makes for a good story looking back. You know, they were already doing jumping around. You know, when that when I when I was filling in, so I had a lot to catch up on and learn. You know, and come out of come out of a shell, I guess. You know, and like, that's where alcohol came in. You know, so that helped out a lot. You know. And what kind of bands were you into around that time? Were you into the other Roadrunner bands that were happening around? I mean, that whole like LA scene. Well, obviously, we love Sepultura. I was heavy into White Zombie, uh, Anthrax, Pantera, stuff like that. Being such a big Sepultura fan, I know you're in that Soulfly video. So was that yes done through the Roadrunner connection, or had you guys toured with that, them? Yeah, played? yeah. No, uh, that was done through the Kevin Estrada connection. Yeah, he was. I mean, he had we had been signed already, and. Kevin's longtime friends with Max. There was two times he did that. Uh, uh, one time, well, for Soulfly, it was uh, doing the bleed video, and he just had us, you know, hey, show up, you know, just come down. They need extras, and the whole thing was supposed to be just being in a pit for I don't even know how many hours we were there. You know, everybody woke up sore the next day, but uh, the Fear Factory guys were there. And I guess whoever was supposed to play like the bad guy or whatever in the, in the video, he didn't show up. So they were like, you know, like shit, who, who do we get? You know? And then Christian, you know, he just, what about Rob? You know, he's got the bald head, go uh, mustache, go T deal going on, you know? And they're like, well, you want to do it? I was like, yeah, sure. So got to do that. You know, that was my, uh, my video debut and whatnot. So it, it was fun. It was an experience. I mean, like I said, the whole, being a pit for like you know eight nine hours or whatever it was that fucking sucks but you know the next <laughs> morning but but you know and like you know well you have to act like this you, you know you gotta do this this and that you know i mean it was a little weird but yeah it, it was definitely cool you know and then at that time you know everyone was uh you know wanting to hear what max was gonna put out you know and that was like a big deal kevin put us on a show in arizona it was a soul fly show uh snot and head pe were on it God bless Kevin's heart. I know, like, if there were any gray hairs that he ever got in life, we were the ones that put him, you know, put him there. <laughs> he, uh, he, you know, we're, you guys be responsible. You guys go to the show, you know, and he gave us money to, to feed us. And, you know, of course, you know, like by the time we got there, we blew the money on alcohol and I think someone bought like hair dye. And that was the first time I ever saw Kevin, like, you know, steam coming, steam coming out of his ears, horns coming out of his head. He was mad at us, you know, but, you know, he, he, he was the one that hooked it up. He helped us out, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it was cool to, to do those, you know, but I mean, not cool to piss him off, but, you know, to do a show and do those videos, it, it, it was cool. No, that album's awesome too, you know. 
Kevin's definitely a brother. You know, he was, he was like that. Yeah. He was like a parental role, older brother. You know, he, he stuck his neck out for us. He did a ton of shit for us, you know, and, uh, you know, forever grateful for that. You know, I mean, uh, forever, I forever love that guy for, it says a lot for someone to believe in you, you know, when they barely even know you, the, uh, the cover of the album, um, we couldn't find, we didn't know, you know, we had the name strictly diesel, but we didn't know what the, what the image on the, on the cover was going to be, you know, we were just racking our brains and one day out of nowhere, um, Mike came in and, Hey, I, uh, there's, I found this busted up piano down the street. Uh, you guys want to go take a look? So we jumped in his car and looked and, you know, the good thing of having an AR that's a photographer, he had a camera on him all the time. So, so Kevin just started taking pictures and we thought, you know, we got the cover of the album there. So, I mean, yeah, he did, he did it. He went above and beyond for us, you know, which is great. Now, uh, you said you're, you were a fan of Sepultura. Of course, you guys are finding out about Fear Factory. You're in the Soulfly video. I know you like uh, Typo Negative. Do you have like a top five favorite Roadrunner albums or anything like that? Looking back now, you know, it's been the whole legacy. Definitely go Nail Bomb, first and only. I, I love that album. October Rest, I, every time it's fallen, I'm drinking my ass off. That has to come on. Uh, I'm going to have to say, I love the manufacturer, but I got to go with Obsolete because on this whole run of Strictly Diesel, I mean, we're, I just, you know, I have that special place in my heart when I hear that because it just reminds me of that time. I'll go, I'll go first, Slipknot. All right, self titled nope, Slipknot. Nope. Yeah, and then uh, I'm just to say, just because, well, Heidi Kaufman's just because of, it's, uh, you know, just love that album too. You know, yeah, just, uh, you know, obvious reasons. Well, you know, I guess any of our albums. Well, you say any of our albums, so let's let's talk about Strictly Diesel. When you think of Strictly Diesel, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, my guitar gently weeps. Well, my guitar gently I always regret that we didn't play that song live. Uh, we, well, we, we, we didn't play that song live until the last one that we did. And I didn't realize till later that, you know, that obviously till later that it was such a fun song to play. And I, I don't know if it didn't work well on the set or whatever, but we refused to play it. And we're all Beatles fans. But um, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, they want... Roadrunner, the story behind that, Roadrunner wanted us to do, um, since we had Amir producing um, and bands were all doing the 80s stuff or covers, they wanted us to do an 80s cover and we tried. It just didn't, wasn't working and we really couldn't figure out a song and all of us being Beatles fans. And I think Tommy came up and said, well, what about, you know, let's do the Beatles and all my guitar gently weeps. And, you know, somehow figured out how we were going to do it and, you know, we, we recorded it, but, um, yeah, I just I just wish we would have played that song more, or you know, or incorporated it in earlier sets. Yeah, I was surprised always that that wasn't uh, a single for the exact reason you just said that you know all bands were releasing the the '80s covers. Uh, mm-hmm. Even Amir with Orgy, of course, had Blue Monday. You had Fear Factory with Cars. I know, like for even like uh, when they tried to do like with that, I remember when they tried to do uh, singles and Rotor and tried to do. Uh, they tried to release Detach as a single. I'm not sure if you ever heard that one where they had, uh, I think, Jay Gordon sang kind of on it. I think uh, instead, of, instead of screaming the chorus, it was like a singing chorus. And yeah, it didn't yeah. really sound like it. Yeah. It just sounded like, it, I, I like, I like hard Detach, you know, so. 
So, but yeah, I mean, that, that's what they tried to release and it didn't work out. But yeah, I mean, they had talked about it and they had to fly Johnny out somewhere or whatever. I don't even know where we were at. But they had to fly him out somewhere and then they did it. And then we heard that we heard it when, you know, it was kind of like, uh, it was just kind of like, well, what's this? You know, this, this isn't detached. Do you have a favorite tour that you did for Strictly Diesel? I say, I say like the System of the Down tour that we did. We did one with uh, System and Static X. That was a European tour, but that one just in particular, and Mike wasn't even there because he, he had some passport issues, but we played Dynamo, and I always just remember it was just System, System was on the main stage. We were both on the second stage. We were sharing a bus with Static. Um, yeah, Mike couldn't make it in for a couple of shows until we got to London or whatever, and we're in Holland, and I don't remember if we were at it late or whatever, but we pulled up. I don't know if it was a Friday or Saturday. I know we had to have been playing the Sunday. And they they said, well, here, we don't have any food tickets, but here's drink tickets. And it had to have been two or three days of just alcohol, no food. Did you feel like you got a better reaction in Europe than you did in the States? Mm-hmm. Definitely. It was uh, the first time we got there, it was just, like, really weird. Because, I mean, we were playing – yeah, we were playing the smaller clubs here and, and – uh, or, or theaters, you know, because we were going, you know, out with Fear Factory and whatnot and – we got there and it was just, yeah, they were that shit crazy. You know, like they would, yeah, they were just more, more energetic. I mean, I guess, you know, they, they would always say that, you know, here in the States, you know, we're spoiled with bands, you know, so you would have like the major markets where people would just stand around. Right. And then, and then they don't get it over there all the time. So you would have these like, you know, everyone just going crazy, you know, and it, and it, yeah, it, uh, the crowd reactions over there, definitely. They were there. They were, they were, they were a little bit. They were a little bit more energetic. Are there particular mm-hmm. moments of recording Strictly Diesel that stand out to you, whether they're good or bad? There was a lot of alcohol in that. Uh, so uh, there was a, there's, there's a couple of memories, I guess. That like uh, is is alcohol the sixth member of the band? It sounds like that comes up. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, you could ask any of us. We were just we were we were a little out of control. We I mean, when, mind you, we grew up with the Pantera video, so we were like, we want to do that. Did you ever go to the Vinnie Paul strip club in Texas? Yes, we did. We went there. We went there once on uh, the Sepultura Biohazard tour. I was more amazed because I mean, I think that was one of we did. I think we did a Fear Factory tour. I think it was that first Fear Factory tour. But we thought we were all hot shit. You know, I mean, we were playing pretty cool shows. I mean, crowds were doing pretty good. And I think we were, we had the we had them we had them run from the west coast to the east coast, and we finished in the east coast. So. We thought we were like, oh fuck, we have an album coming out, you know. Uh, you know, I think it's time we, you know, we off the Annie, you know, we should be doing a headlining tour now, you know. So we need, we need to do a run back. We got to get back to LA, so we want to do a headlining run on the way back. You know, I don't know if on our head, in our heads, we're thinking we should be doing fucking, you know, Def Leppard size arenas or whatnot. <laughs> but, we, but we had no album out yet. It was us and this band called Soak, who John from Disturbed, uh, his uh, original band that he was in. And we were playing all these fucking backwater market, you know, backwater market bars, whatever, you know, and they didn't know who the fuck we were. You know, I mean, we were, we were, we were stuck with, uh, tonight we have national touring next spine shank, you know, cool. Locals would turn around like, who the fuck is this? You know, and <laughs> we ended this, we ended that tour in a lot in Oklahoma and still had no record out. I was still like, well, what the fuck's going on? You know, like, and then I don't know, for some reason we decided to do it or somebody Put a, put us in an in store with no record out. You know, me and Tommy are sitting there like, what the fuck are we supposed to sign? So I don't know. There was like 
Car- Carpenter's albums on the table, or whatever. So we're just signing that. There was a couple people that even came to check it out, but had no idea who we were. So we're giving them Carpenter's record signed, you know, or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, we we ended up playing uh, finishing a lot in Oklahoma uh, to the board. The local kids that are bored have nothing better to do, and they probably didn't give a shit who we were. And then we just went home, and we're like, wow, okay, you know, like that was a reality check, I guess. You know, I'm not doing that again. The next tour was. Uh, Sepultura and Biohazard. Yeah, and then we did, we had, I was more, you know, we went, we ended up at that club, which is cool. And I was, you know, yeah, this is cool. You know, he's hooking us up with free alcohol, you know. But I remember we were playing, uh, we played in Dallas, and that was just really weird because, you know, you're hearing, like, you know, man, we're a new band, you know, you're, oh, you know, Vinnie Paul and Dimebag are up in the balcony watching, you know, we're like, oh, shit, cool, you know. Pulled the whole uh, club to the dollhouse, and yeah, alcohol came in again, you know, we were just, you know, drinking the night away, had a good time. So mm. making a strictly diesel. Well, we got there at NRG, uh, which was kind of cool. We had, um, we were, we, we were in one, one room and, uh, corn was recording, uh, follow the leader in the next room. We had the full table room and they had a bar room, alcohol again. And it, it was just cool. I mean, Jonathan Davis monkey had, they were the only ones that we mainly saw there. And, you know, they just came in one day like, Hey, uh, we don't have a pool table, so is it cool if we come in here and play pool? And we're just like, yeah, fuck yeah. You know, and they're like, well, we got a bar in there. If you guys want to grab some drink or whatever, and we're like, well, all right, cool, thanks. You know, and I mean, it's not like we're going to get out of control or anything, but it was just, you know, it was just cool. You know, and uh, kind of like a game to watch that where some nights we'd be hanging out and they would be playing tracks in our control room, I guess, you know, the of, you know, from Follow the Leader, you know, or, you know, and, and them and some of the orgy guys would be in there. And, you know, that was definitely cool looking back at, you know, just, uh, I guess it'd be a fly on the wall, but well, not even a fly on the wall because we're making a record there too. Yeah. Crazy to even say that sentence, right? Your, your next door for making your first record of all corns making, you know, what would go on to be this insane multi-platinum success. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, just, just being able to make that record, you know, or make our record, you know, I know like that's where Tommy and Mike, you know, they started getting into their, you know, they really got into production, you know, and, and, you know, they, they would do all, all our stuff when, you know, after that, you know, when we we're doing demos and, you know, they did the last album, but they were, you know, they would be asking questions to Jay Baumgartner and Amir, you know, just learning from that and uh, learning from them. What is a song of Spine Shanks that you would want to be a wrestling entrance theme and what wrestler would you want to use it for? And I don't know how true this ever was, but when I want to say it was asthmatic, we had met, you know, when message boards were like the thing, whatever, uh, back then we had our spine shake me- uh, website and message board. And I remember one day seeing, I said, my name is Rob Van Dam. And I was one, I wanted to, uh, I, I was, you know, something about, you know, I wanted to use asthmatic, for, you know, as my interest theme or something like that. I tried like, yeah, dude, go for it, you know, but they never got back to us. So I thought that would have been cool. Disturbed. They were doing, uh, they had redid the Stone Cold theme. Oh, right. Yeah, I know, and I know they had performed it at WWE New York or whatever. I was not you know, I wasn't hating on them. That's fucking awesome. But I was like, you know, I looked what they had dreaming, and I was like, how the fuck did you get that? It's so fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. So I was just like, shit, that's cool. But yeah, I mean, yeah, fucking. Uh, I mean, if Rob Van Dam would have done something like that, and, and maybe Tommy would, Tommy Decker would appreciate this if we uh, any type of spine shank song, but fucking Andre the Giant walking out the way Andre the Giant walks walks. It would make no sense, but it's just we love Andre the Giant. So 
<laughs> and he's playing sing song with Andre the Giant walking out. Well, me, me and Tommy's like common bond back in the day. We're like serial killers. He remembers more shit than I do. But uh, so they had a they had a book called a uh, book about Ed Gein. Anyway, the cover of the book it was his face, but it was like torn, you know. And me and Tommy were looking like that looks cool. You know, we should probably do that with the you know with our faces. So that that's where that came from, from a serial killer book. That's actually really sick. That you, especially that being something that you guys were like bonded over. So getting to incorporate yeah, it. Yeah, no, but we bonded over like you know we. I mean, we we liked the same stuff. But yeah, for some reason we just were. It's well, we were into serial killers at the time for some odd reason. I mean, uh, you know, like. Well, you were ahead of the game now because serial killers like the biggest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean we. Yeah, I mean we we did. That's. I guess those are some more stories too. Because I remember like we had. I I had a bunch of. I mean, I couldn't watch these anymore. I can't do that. I'm not all about that, you know, but all the face of the death stuff and face of the death. And they had a, uh, had a book called crime scenes and, uh, it was LA homicide photos and from like the forties the or something. And, uh, so when we were doing vocals, so I went, I went and I was like, okay, Rob, now you're going to do your thing. And I'm like, all right, cool. I walked in and, you know, Coach, you know, Johnny had his candles, Johnny had his pictures with the kids, and great, you know. Those ain't my kids, those aren't my candles. <laughs> so, so I was like, all right, I got, you know, I got my, I got my crime scene book here, so I just started taking pictures of that and started putting them up there. You know, I was like, hey, these are my, this is my inspiration, cool. Thanks so much to Rob, who looks exactly the same today as he did in 1998 when this album came out. So whatever he's doing, it's working. We now move on to Mike Sarkeesian, guitar player for Spineshank, who was there since the very beginning, back when Spineshank had two guitar players. He tells us all about kind of those early beginnings as well, from his point of view, as well as working with Amir Durak of Orgy fame who helped produce this album with Jay Baumgartner, as well as Josh Abraham, who uh, is a big-time pop producer now, but started off putting some some beeps and boops on the Strictly Diesel. Very cool. But he gives us the ins and outs of this record, making it, titling it, all of that. So let's start the machine. But to understand Strictly Diesel and to understand Spineshake, I think we would have to probably go a year or maybe two prior to, to Diesel. We were, me, Tommy, and Johnny, we're in a band called Basic Enigma. And we were just basically young kids. I mean, I wasn't even 18 yet. I think I was like 16 or 17 at the time. We're kind of like a wannabe biohazard Whatever, you know, there was no L.A. scene at the time, which later became new metal. There was none of that. You know, it was literally like Corn and Machine Head and D-Manufacture hadn't even come out yet. Deftones weren't out yet. None of that. Coal Chamber was, I don't know if you know this, Coal Chamber broke up once and then got back together. So that band basically just, I mean, you know, we're, I don't know why, for whatever reason, we just said, forget it, we're not doing this anymore. And then uh, our other guitar player, Marlo, we had two guitar players when Spineshank first started. And Tommy started writing stuff. And then Tommy kind of just pulled the old dudes back together <laughs> and we formed Spineshank. And Johnny used to play bass and sing. 
and we had two guitar players. I wasn't the only guitar player. So we went through a few different lineup changes, but that first demo we did with the four of those dudes was a really weird. I mean, we actually tried remixing this just prior to Anger Denial. And I got all the tapes transferred. I put it all on Pro Tools. I brought the tracks up and I was like, bro, I'm not remixing this shit. Because everything was out of tune. Everything was out of key. Like both, you know, I was like, in order for me to do this, like I would have to replay everything. I'm, and I'm not doing that. Anyway, point being is that was not what ended up being Strictly Diesel. There was actually two songs on there that ended up being on Strictly Diesel. One of them was Stain. The other one was Mend. It was more of like a industrial. There was all kinds of stuff like that on there. But, you know, obviously we didn't have any access to any of the studio technology. We were literally on a four track. And then uh, we would book time at like 300 bucks, go to the studio and record a demo. And, you know, those guys were just, just plug in and play, bro. I don't care if you're in tune or whatever. So that was the mindset, you know, like we're into Frontline Assembly and Godflesh. Uh, there was a band that actually I, I always thought they should have been way bigger than they ended up being, uh, Misery Left's Company. That's kind of what th that first demo was. And there were eight songs on that thing. So we went and recorded demo without having played a single show. And then our first show at Spineshank ended up being opening up for Fear Factory and Cold Chamber at the Whiskey. January, if I'm not mistaken, 11th of 1997. Holy shit, that was a long time ago. And the way that show actually happened is I was a huge fan of Sick of It All. And there was this shitty little dive in, uh, like, I don't remember if it was in the city of Santa Monica or just before you get to the city of Santa Monica, part of it, on Pico, like right underneath the freeway. It was called the Alligator Lounge. So I'm there to see Sick of It All. Dino is, you know, a local underground celebrity at the time. You know, Fear Factory, Demanufacture, like Remanufacture was about to come out. I go up to Dino. I go, hey, bro, my name is Mike. I'm in a band called Spine Shank. You know, I really love your band and, you know, and this and that. And I give him a demo. Now, on that demo, out of the eight songs were Stain Mend and a third song called Novocaine. So I give him this demo. And he goes, he looks at it. He goes like, holy shit, I've heard of you guys. I'm like, how the fuck did you hear of us? We've never played a show, never done anything, you know? Um, and I think a week prior to that, I had run into uh, Miguel from Cold Chamber, Meeks, at their show, and I gave him a demo, and I had no idea, but them two lived in the same apartment building, Dino and Miguel. So Miguel, Miguel was like, Dino, you got to check this band out. I just got this demo. And he had played it for Dino. So when I gave it to Dino, Dino knew this. So I don't know where I got the ball from. I said, hey, bro, I know you guys are playing a show at the Whiskey, like, in a couple of weeks. You think we can open that? <laughs> and he goes, like, yeah, why not? <laughs> Fuck it. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I remember, like, we didn't even have cell phones back then. We had beepers, and I'm beeping Tommy. Nine one one nine one one nine one one. 
you know, you had like those codes with the beepers. Right. <laughs> and I'm going like, bro, I think, I think we're playing a show with Fear Factory. And uh, it was, it was like the, the, that was to me, that was like the coolest feeling in the world. That was, that was probably better than being signed. Say the truth. Just that. It was like, we're playing with Fear Factory and Cold Jammer. Cold Chamber were uh, already signed. They had just finished their record. And it was like their kind of homecoming, whatever, opening show. They hadn't started touring yet. Record wasn't released, but it was already in the can. And so that was our first show. And um, that was now 97, January of 97. We had a record deal with Roadrunner in September of 97. So in those nine months, um, the reason I want to kind of stress this subject is in the nine months, a band couldn't have played enough shows to be a ready band, to, you know, get a record deal and all that other stuff that came along with it, the package. We're just kind of thrown into the meat grinder at that point. So... The way we got a record deal is, um, I guess, Kevin Estrada, who is now a very good friend of mine, was at that show, obviously, because Fear, they were both Roadrunner bands, and he was like the new A&R guy at Roadrunner. Roadrunner had never had um, really like West Coast offices prior to that, so they had opened a West Coast office. It was a really small office, like four, four or five people working there. And um, Kevin was a West Coast A&R rep, newly hired Kevin was at the first Fear Factory show. The Fear Factory uh, Cold Chambers Fine Shank show. Yeah, that show. He was at that show. I didn't meet him. Uh, we, you know, we met like I think later on at some point, like actually face to face and started talking. There was interest from Eric and there was interest from Noise Records. I'll tell you who was on Noise Records, Manhole, that okay. later turned into. Tura Satana. Right. Uh, my and Ruin. I don't know if My Ruin was on noise. Well, My Ruin yeah. and Tura Satana, they're, they're the same yeah, people, Terry right? B. Mason, yeah, Terry B. and, you know, and Cello and Rico played bass. And Terry's cool. We actually did some shows with them early on. So anyway, so we, we play the show at, at the Coconut Teaser. And it's it sounded like Earache was kind of into signing the band. And we were like, I mean, we're broke, you know, we're just a bunch of young punks, don't have any money, can't even buy equipment, like buying strings was a problem, you know, like that local band shit. And then Kevin said, um, hey, I want to meet you guys. I want to meet up with you guys. And from what we gather is Roadrunner was going to offer us a production deal, kind of like a spec deal, like they're going to get a couple of producers to do a couple of songs in a proper studio. Based on that, they'll either yay or nay the band. And we said, okay, cool. You know, I remember kind of being excited, you know, like, cool. So Roadrunner offices were in Santa Monica at the time, the city of Santa Monica. And there was an Acapulco there, a shitty little Mexican restaurant. There was like a chain at the time of, you know, I think there's still a couple around. So we're sitting at Acapulco and, you know, like we weren't really used to other people buying dinner for us and things like that. You know, we, we would just eat tacos and hamburgers and stupid shit like that. So, you know, we're sitting at a restaurant eating dinner to us. It was like an amazing restaurant. You know what I mean, and uh, Kevin goes like, 
Um, I think I'm going to skip the production deal, guys. I think I'm just going to offer you a record contract. What do you mean you're going to offer us a record deal? Like I wrote on a records, like where all my favorite bands are. So what do we do? So Dino goes like, hey, look, there's this attorney that, you know, represents Fear Factory. His name is Bill Barrel. Oh, cool. He, he's got Fear Factory. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> he must be good. <laughs> so we went to him. And we actually ended up making that entire record without management. We didn't have any management. So Kevin was kind of, you know, our de facto manager. Like he was the guy that would keep us in line kind of thing, which is not something A&R guys do. Fast forward to, you know, him saying, we're going to sign you. We got signed. We actually signed the contract. Got like, I don't know, 10 grand or some shit like that. I actually went and bought me a pretty nice Marshall hat that later got stolen. Uh, later on on the diesel tour, uh, a whole truck got stolen of ours, Fear Factories, and System in Philadelphia. The entire oh. truck. They just took the whole truck. They stole the entire truck. The tour stopped. That was it. Winter of 99. So... You know, and we're like, okay, so what do we do? We go to the studio. Uh, what's going to happen? You know, we didn't know anything about any of this stuff. And um, we ended up writing pretty much that entire record after we got signed, other than Detached, Stain, and Ment. And Stain changed, Detached didn't change much from the demo form to its record form. Stain and Ment definitely did. Listening to it today, um, I don't know which versions I like better, to tell you the truth. I think if um, if the the old older versions were done properly, I think they're better versions than the ones on the record because they were a little heavier, more uh, we're like more death metal influenced. Like I was a really big Morbid Angel fan, so was so was our other guitar player Marlo that started the band with us. Well, it's interesting between you telling me that you love Sick of It All, which are, you know, like the hardcore band, probably the greatest hardcore band of all time, arguably. I would I would definitely agree with that. The greatest hardcore band of all time, Sick of It All. And Easy. then Morbid Angel, you know, death metal. So, mm -hmm. you know, your guitar playing on any Spineshank record, I wouldn't immediately draw those influences, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. I, you know, if I look for them, maybe I can find them now. But what did what was influencing you with writing these guitar parts? Or were you taking the things that you loved of those bands and kind of making it work for spine shank nothing really i'll tell you what influenced diesel the most do you know a guy named ro so i think he had just got a job at roadrunner i knew him before that he used to have a, a fanzine called shock to the system but i think right when we got signed he started a job at roadrunner and i don't know how the hell but back then this was like a thing he got me a promo copy of around the fur and to me that was really funny because Later on, when the record came out, everybody really associated us with Fear Factory. You know? um, and I don't ever think we sounded anything like Fear Factory. Other than being friends with the guys and Dino really like helping us out and playing like the big brother role. Sound wise, we had nothing in common with Fear Factory whatsoever. We could have been, you know, like they're all double bass and Tommy doesn't even play double bass like that. But Around the Fur happened and... I remember like my own summer, but definitely, you know, looking at this now, 
Shinebox is definitely Deftones inspired. You know that little part in, in, in Shinebox that goes day, 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 day. I was ripping off Cultura. That was Roots. <laughs> so, Deftones were definitely, I think, a, a huge influence on, on that record. Because uh, I remember like hearing around the fern going like, holy fuck, is this good? And the record was, it was like two months prior to the release. Normally, every record after that, we would have at least five, six, seven songs that never made the record. On Diesel, everything we wrote made the record. There's not one single track that is left over from those sessions. It's also a jam-packed record. It's got 14 tracks on it, you know, so I believe you that there's... <laughs> Holy shit, it doesn't work these tracks like this. You know, but, you know, you throw a bunch of 18, 20-year-olds in this, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of NRG recordings, NRG studios. Yeah, well, because Amir and Jay Baumgartner had just opened that up to do the Cold Chamber record, so you were like one of the early albums even recorded there. Right. Um, well, that was Jay's studio, Jay Baumgartner's studio. Um, and... We didn't even look for any other producers. It was like, okay, well, Cold Chamber had just had pretty, you know, major success with uh, their first record. And the team behind that was Amir J and J. So I guess for whatever reason, Jay Gordon couldn't do it. We didn't even ask. And it was like kind of said that, okay, Amir and Jay Baumgarten are going to do your record. Okay, cool. Like we didn't even look for anyone else. We didn't even know what being a producer was. Um, and I think they did a pretty damn good job. You know, looking back on it, I think every record we've done is a snapshot of the band at that particular period. And for better or worse, Street Me Diesel is us at that time. Kind of confused, kind of green, didn't really know what the hell we're doing. Just, just doing, you know, just going along with it. Street Diesel is actually the only Spy Shake record that was done without Pro Tools. Oh, wow. That was all analog? It was all analog, all tape, mixed on tape. That was the part in Mend. There's like a little drum break that was only there one time. Later on, we decided we wanted it there twice. So they had to bring a whole Pro Tools rig next door because Corn was next door doing Follow the Leader to just move this one part over. But other than that, there's absolutely zero Pro Tools, zero editing, nothing on that record. It's it's us playing. Oh, that's awesome. Especially considering the kind of band that you would become. You know, that's a, another interesting thing that you mentioned is that you're saying earlier on, even pre-Spineshank, you guys are kind of doing this pseudo-industrial thing. And of course, Spineshank becomes very much... Uh, I don't want to say an industrial band, but certainly those elements are are brought more to the yeah. forefront. But yeah, Strictly sure. Diesel barely has that. To me, I think without the context of knowing what happens afterwards, listening to Strictly Diesel, I wouldn't think like, oh, this is an industrial band. I mean, it certainly has the the noises and things like that that um that you know like new metal and things like well, that. The, the programming and all yeah. that other stuff. But you know what? Like l- listening back to it, it it kind of. Later on, it was it was always like we we wrote songs in a way and we produced everything in a way where it sounded together. 
in Strictly Diesel, listen, especially listening to it today, I realized that it was just basically like a rock band. And for no reason, there was just electronics thrown in where they didn't really fit into those songs because we wanted electronics. And we brought a, Amir actually said, suggested that Josh, their producer, Josh Abraham, should come in and do programming. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. Like, while my guitar gently weeps definitely worked, intake worked. Rest of it, it was just like, it was just there for the sake of us saying we use electronics. When you say it, like, I can kind of hear that, that it's an afterthought versus, you know, it's very yeah. much a central part of the whole composition exactly. of the song. Versus so. like having it be another instrument. And was that, just, and that was just something you guys were always interested in, or is it something that Tommy really dived into later on? Cause he kind of, I mean, you're saying you did some of the programming too. So I don't want to take anything away from you on that, but it uh, seems like he's kind of like the spearhead of, even you're telling me he's kind of the one to put the band together, right? He, he's like writing songs and things like that. No, well, Tommy can play an instrument really. So oh. Tommy writing songs is like coming to me going like, Hey, play a riff. Like, <laughs> Kind of like what Clown is in Slipknot, that kind of thing. It was sort of the glue that held us all together in a in a weird way. Rob would do his thing. Rob, we always called him our secret weapon. Not as much even for his bass playing, but his vocals. All those screams that Rob did, you know, like it was stuff that it was a great contrast to. It's not that Johnny couldn't scream, but when you put Johnny and Rob screaming on the same track, it's just a different scream. It's a different contrast. So that was always like our secret weapon. Like, oh, you know, we would even say like, all right, we got a Johnny track and here's a Rob Screams. We got to put some Rob Screams on here. We, would just, we, we wouldn't even know what it was going to be, what the part was going to be, what the lyrics going to be. We just said Rob Screams. And that was there. What do you think working with Amir brought to the album that wouldn't have been there Without him, you know, I know, of course, he plays synth guitar on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which is really sick. I mean, um, he was in Orgy at the time. Speaking of Orgy, I'll tell you where Orgy had an influence on, on this record as well. Some parts, uh, if it breeds, I think Mend, too, where Johnny sort of like adopted this uh, Jay Gordon-esque British accent shit. Definitely on If It Breathes, he's definitely doing his right. best, Jay Gordon. Or, or, or men too, like your little fucking game. Why the fuck did we let that go? You know, but I guess nobody cared. <laughs> so, and I guess Amir thought that was cool, so whatever. <laughs> when we, when before Amir got to us, I used to tune all the guitars to drop A sharp. And the way everything we wrote was basically in A sharp. So when Amir came in, he said, hey, everything you have is in the same key, guys. Um, let's change tunings. So that's one thing that that, rec- that Diesel has four different tunings. We went all the way from dropped A to dropped A sharp. There's a B tuning and a C tuning to when you listen to the whole record, not everything's in the same key. That's definitely something Amir brought. 
Amir brought his knowledge of um, sound engineering. Let's plug these pedals in and see what kind of sound it makes. And then we'll make a cool sound. And that's, that's something I picked up on for later on where I did that on every record. And I think that was definitely a mirror influence that I picked up and kind of made my own thing later on. Prior to that, I wasn't really into, you know, I had, I think before that record, before making that record, I had like, I didn't even own a wah pedal. He didn't really do much on, as much on Diesel, to tell you the truth, as he did on Callousness, because Amir was a part of Haida Callousness as well. One thing I do loved about that record, even listening to it today, Diesel is out of all the spine shank records, every one of them, it has the most natural drum sounds. Drum sound, like, they're really, they're not triggered. They're not sound replaced. It's just mics and a knee board. It sounds really good. But that sound would never work for callousness or anything after that came after that. Because everything was too fast. There's always a wall of guitars for Spy Shake. You know, I you know, I got songs where shit, man, violent mood swings had like, if I'm not mistaken, 47 guitar tracks. Diesel didn't. Diesel was a right, just a right left. That's all it was. And then whatever color stuff we would put on top. Yeah, I mean, uh, you were the only guitar player, but that's a good point to make too. That the way it's uh, mixed with between the left and right, it's almost sounds like two guitars a lot of the time. Like one guitar part will be playing in one ear, and the other guitar part pl- plays in the other, which is a clever little trick to make it sound fuller. We were still coming off that whole two guitar player thing on Diesel. So it was, it's something I abandoned completely after that record, that, that whole two guitar thing, where like if you listen to, say, Stain, uh, being that that was on our first demo when we did have two guitar players, like, that was, we actually used to play that. Like I would play one side and, Marlo, our guitar player, would play the other side. You know, to reproduce that live would be a nightmare. I actually tried. I even, at some point, had two cabinets. Like, I had a cabinet behind me, and then a cabinet on the other side, and I had a switch where I I could cut one side off and on. Oh, that's pretty sick. No. No, not sick. It's a great idea. Like it was like a kind of more of a gimmick. Like it worked better on paper than it did in practice. So I completely abandoned that after that. It was like, okay, we're a one guitar player band. And that's what we're going to do. And if I'm going to layer the shit out of guitars that have 15 different guitar parts, that's cool. But I'm not going to like give this impression of, oh, we got two guitar players, two distinctly different guitar players, like Korn or, you know, Judas Priest or whatever. Yeah, Corner Judas Priest, the two most well-known two <laughs> guitar bands. Um, but yeah, after this, I mean, the electronics kind of become the second guitar, right? You know, that's like the, the additional instrument, I feel like, and it fleshes things out more. Now, George Harrison famously converted to the Krishna Hindu religion when he uh-huh. was playing his solo music, like While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And the song Star 28 has this like chanting in the background of it. <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. 
you're the first person that's asked that. And I, will, I actually have an answer prepared for that. Okay, I'm excited. So, that like whole middle section, that like there's a dude talking there, right? Okay, that dude is me. <laughs> We had this middle section in there, and I I didn't think, but I did, didn't really care as much. Again, I wasn't very involved in the production. So Amir goes like, hey, we should put you in there uh, reading a newspaper. Because they wanted like some kind of just blabber in that park. And I said, even better. I was like, hey, how about I go in there and just start talking Armenian? And Amir got really excited when he heard this. He was like, fuck yeah, bro. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. So, you know, they, they threw me in the vocal booth. Now, the, the problem with this is <laughs> if you know Armenian, there are two Armenian dialects. I'm from Armenia, which is considered Eastern Armenian. So we speak Eastern Armenian dialect, but I speak both fluently. So everything on that is a Western Armenian dialect, which is not my native Armenian. That's, I mean, I speak it, I can. So for you to understand what it is, is like, I guess, a difference between British English and American English. Just stupid shit. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. They just threw me in there. It was one take. I said whatever came to my mind, and that was the end of that. What does uh, Star 28 mean? Is that like, uh, is that like information or something? I can't believe that. Well, we're going to go down this. We're going to go down every title for you. Star 28. So we're at NRG Recordings, NRG Studios, and uh, there's phones everywhere. And there was like these little lamps, uh, like on, on little tables with these little intercom thingies. So when a phone call would come in, it would go to a reception. I mean, it's a, it's a multi-million dollar studio. It would go to reception and, you know, like, let's say you would have called, say, hey, can I speak with Mike from Spineshank? Who's calling? You know, Ryan's calling. Cool. And then on, on there, it would light up. It would say, Mike, that the light would flicker. The lamp would flicker. And then it would say, phone call from Mike from so-and-so. On the flip side of that, you could pick up any phone in that studio, hit star 28, and it would go to reception. And you would say, hey, this is Mike in Studio A. I need two cases of beer, some condoms, fucking in and out, whatever. And they would go and get it for you. It was runners. Studio runners would actually go and get your stuff. Because, you know, you're artists and, you know, you can't be bothered with real life problems and shit like that. So... We figured this out. Like, we would just hit star 28. Hey, man, we need more beer. Get more beer. Get more beer. We didn't know we we're getting built for this. <laughs> we thought it was it was like an amenity that came with the studio. You know? <laughs> like, I don't even know if we even thought that. I don't know if we even thought. Period. Like, it was, it was like, okay, hit star 28. I mean, shit, I was like a 20-year-old kid, 19. Hold on. 1998. Okay, I was 21. 
I had just turned 21. <laughs> For legal reasons, you were 21. <laughs> there was a dude, Tommy called him Jacket Boy, because I think he thought he stole his jacket. So we would, just to make the story funnier, we would call Star 28, Jacket Boy would pick up, you'd be like, bro, go get two cases of Bud Light, some cigarettes, whatever, and then it would just magically appear there. So we were really bad at titles. <laughs> like, what do we call this song? Star 28, bro. That's that. That's Star 28 for you. To me, it's probably like the, I don't know what's worse, that or if it breathes. Oh, if it breathes is sick too, because it's got that pulsing. One thing that I've always hated on this, and I hated it like even back then, is the title track. The best song on the whole album. You think? Yeah, the Strictly Diesel song? Yes. Yeah. Oh, actually, Stain might be the best song. But the thing about Stain, Strictly Diesel, and Intake, all of them talk about starting the machine. You guys are trying to get this machine going. And I was like, you know, I, I guess, I mean, and that was the other thing. It was like, oh, the machine, the machine, the machine, and then the machine broke, you know? On once our equipment got stolen and then the machine just completely <laughs> collapsed. <laughs> you were running that machine without oil, bro. You know, <laughs> like literally. Another point I wanted to make about this record is uh, I definitely would have uh, sequenced it differently. But Monty came in last minute, Monty Connor, you know, and he was like, uh, you know, like my forte is sequencing, guys. I know my shit. So he did He did very good. He actually did this on um, callousness, and I wouldn't have done it differently. He nailed it. He fucking nailed it on callousness. But we already knew what the opener was, what the second song was on that. You know, he just basically front-loaded that record. Um, on this one, why does Intake open that record? I don't understand that. To me, the opener was always where we fall. Always. That should have been the opener. Intake's not like, it's not heavy. It's not like a single. It's not catchy. It's not hooky. It's just a song. It's cool. It's not a bad song. It's pretty cool. But I don't know why we opened the record with that, why we let that go. But that was Monty. So if anybody hates that, blame Monty for that one. Fact is that uh, sitar I used on... um, where fall. There's a sitar on that. Yeah. That, I borrowed that from Corn. I went next, you know, Amir said, like, when I wrote that part, that bow, 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 I had always heard a sitar there. I always wanted to hear a sitar there. And uh, I don't know how it happened. Um, I think I was talking to Amir about it. And I said, hey, like, how can we do something that sounds like a sitar? And I don't remember exactly how it happened, but Maybe he said something along the lines of, like, why don't we just use a sitar? And I said, well, where are we going to get a sitar? He said, Cord has one next door. Of course they do. <laughs> so 
because they were they used it on the song. I, I I have heard of use it on a song on on that record. I follow the leader. I just don't remember what song it is. And he went and got it, and we plugged it in, and we just did that part. So yeah, that that was the sitar was cool. That was definitely cool. Where we fall is really where the album starts going because that song's so high energy and and sick, and you know got that higher tempo than everything else, and almost like bordering on like the the rappier style vocals, which definitely work and are are sick here. Yeah, and then we consciously abandoned that as well because I think Where We Fall and 40 Below are the two songs that have that rappy vocal thing. Yeah. But it's more of a Chino rap than a Fred Durst rap. We were consciously like, that's it, dude. Like, I'm callous. Like, you will never hear any anything remotely rap after this record from us. Slipper. Now, the cool thing about Slipper, I'll tell you, is uh, that 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 whole guitar thing. I hadn't, I haven't done that since. I've only done that that one time on that record on that song. Is I'm playing between the tailpiece and the bridge. I'm fretting the notes, but I'm picking between the tailpiece and the bridge. Oh yeah. That whole song is like that. Um, the, the title, obviously, Johnny said why, because, you know, Kevin was telling us a story when he was in college or somewhere. No, not college, Foundations Forum. Uh, there used to be like this metal convention. I think Machine Head got signed at one of those. He was drunk and he smoked one of those like hotel slippers they give you. Our titles on this record had nothing to do with the songs. Fact is, um, I always thought lyrically this record was like shitty. Uh, Slipper and Johnny wrote the lyrics to that. It has moments of bl- brilliance. I couldn't even tell you what these songs are about. Well, and a lot of them are probably not about anything, right? They're just you trying to put words over songs so you can have songs to to put on the record. Right. So, I mean, the way the way we would write, and and this is actually this this. This was the formula until the very, until the end. We would write the music. Then we would have Johnny come in and do basically gibberish. And then that gibberish, someone would take and write actual words to. Uh, okay, Shinebox, very easy. We're, we're huge fans of Goodfellas. Now go home and get your fucking Shinebox. So that Shinebox, Stovebolt, Tommy's dad, may you rest in peace. He was into building Chevys. And Johnny was into cars too, like old hot rods and stuff like that. I've never been into any of that stuff. But if I'm not mistaken, Stovebolt is um, like a type of an... Uh, uh, like a hot rod engine. Why did you guys name the album Strictly Diesel? What does that mean to you? I think Tommy's little brother, the middle brother, Dennis, who's my age. He used to say shit like, oh, that's Strictly Diesel, bro. That's Strictly Diesel. So I think that's where it came from. But the explanation (laughs) we would give at the time, you know, because you have to make sense of things, especially when you're marketing and doing interviews and, you know, it's like, oh, we're, we're like a diesel truck. I'm sure you've heard this. Gets going and it's really slow, but then once it gets going, it's unstoppable. It's it's something they would say. I don't even like the title, to tell you the truth. It never made sense to me. So it was just slang for like that sick? 
So you guys, you talk about how you guys were wearing your uh, influences on your sleeve. The whole catalyst of you getting this record deal is you're at a show. You give Dino the the demo. Your first show is opening up for Fear Factory. And then Burton C. Bell is on the album. He's on Stain, which you're telling me is an older song, too. So you're you're unearthing this track and you're giving it a fresh coat of paint with Burton on it. So what was that like for you? And do you think that was the right choice to have him on the song? I think having Bird on it was cool. Having said that, there was definitely a conscious decision uh, to not have any guests or anything like that on the record after this. It was the right thing to do at the time, and I'm not going to be apologetic about anything. I'm, I'm proud of it. And I Bird definitely kicked ass on it. He just came in, he banged it out. Like it was like one take. I think there might have been a time where, you know, I, I might have thought, like, well, maybe that wasn't the right thing. We shouldn't have had guests on that record. There was definitely a time when I thought that, me personally. But right now, you know, having been, what, 25 years, nah, it's cool. Well, yeah, and the song rules. And it's a big part of why I even know who Spine Shank is. And, but kind of like you alluded to before, you know, it's a, a big part why a lot of people knew Spineshank was in that early time. And that kind of put you in that weird Fear Factory shadow, which, as we already reviewed, you know, didn't really make sense. Because sonically, you guys don't really sound alike. But I think that kind of helped. I don't think it was that. I think I think the reason we got put in a Fear Factory shadow, to tell you the truth, like in retrospect, when I look back on it, is because our bio and every interview we did would say, oh, we were all in this band called Basic Enigma and then we heard Demanufacturing and it was so great that we broke up. I'm sure you've heard this, right? It wasn't really like that. There's some truth to that. Like, we were blown away by Demanufacturing because, you know, like, I was a fan of Fear Factory, Soul of a New Machine. Huge fan of that record. And then, you know, like, the rest of the guys hadn't really heard Fear Factory because they were, you know, they were into Biohazard and Pantera and Fuck, I don't know, Exhorter. They didn't really know Fear Factory. I'm the only guy in this band, it's Fine Shank, that came from like that. I was into death metal, like that death, Morbid Angel and fucking Deicide and that shit, especially Morbid Angel. I was really, really, really into Morbid Angel and Fear Factory. So, and Marlo was in the, in the Fear Factory, but Marlo was not. Marlo was in Spineshank for probably like six months. Through the beginning of it, and then he he quit. He was like, "I'm done. Like I can't do this band shit anymore." So, yeah, of course, we heard the manufacturer, and you know, you put in this record, he goes, "You're like, what the fuck?" I mean, you know, we were blown away by that, but to say that, like. Oh, you know, hearing the manufacturer completely shifted my musical tastes and I wanted to be Dino and Dino only. And, you know, we wanted. No, it wasn't like that at all. So, yeah, was I was it cool having Burton on there? Yeah. Were Fear Factor influence? Absolutely. Was I blown away by the manufacturer? Fuck yeah. But, you know. Again, I think it went a little too far. And then Roadrunner put it in our bio. And like the whole world knew that, like, oh, they used to be in this band. And then all of a sudden they heard the manufacturer. And then, like, 
It was like, ah, you know, the clouds separated. No, it wasn't like that. What is the biggest change that you would make to that album now, looking back on it? <laughs> Everything and nothing. You know what's funny is uh, when Callousness came out, a lot of there was like this like little cult of Diesel fans that were like, "You sold out." We're like, "What the fuck did we sell out?" We're like way heavier now, bro. What are you talking about? But no, you sold out. Diesel was, eh, you know. So I think there's probably you know a fair amount of people that. Diesel is probably their favorite record, you know, because everything that came after that was a progression of, of one band, but this was sort of a different band. This was an unfocused band that was just like determined to make a record and make a record we did. Thanks so much to Kevin, Rob, and Mike for spending time with us, telling us all about this time in their lives that were important to a lot of our lives as well. And if it wasn't something that you were aware of at the time, now's the time to check it out. Don't let these histories and legacies not be preserved through you. I really appreciate you spending the time listening to these episodes. And if you enjoy them, please tell a friend. And if you don't enjoy them, tell your enemy. That'll teach them. That'll get them. Hey, you know what'll really piss them off? Go to patreon.com slash meetmeetpod and sign up to support the show there. <laughs> oh, man. They'll, they'll be so pissed. But what will not make me pissed, what will fill me with joy, is if you join me on the next episode, which will actually be covering Earth Crisis's 1998 only Roadrunner album, Breed the Killers. So I'm excited to share that one with you, and we will talk to you then. But until then... Who is we? My name is Ryan Rainbow. This is me, Meep. And yes, that's the best that I could come up with. Bye. Bye.